0: We are going to go, guess where, this morning in our Bible study. (laughs) Morning, Stephen. You didn't even hear me. I said, good morning, Stephen. He's the only one that calls me Pops and gets away with it. It's only because he's way bigger than I am. Uh, We've been studying 1 Timothy now for a number of weeks and just to remind us if you haven't been here with us and maybe you don't know much about 1 Timothy, it's a a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to perhaps the the man that he is most fond of, uh, a a man who he considers himself to be a spiritual father and Timothy to be a spiritual son. There's a great love between the two of them, a great trust. Paul has left Ephesus, uh, not really because he wanted to necessarily, but because he was basically driven out of Ephesus because he was simply preaching Jesus. And when he left, he left Timothy behind there to continue in the ministry that he had only begun. And this letter uh, is written from Paul to Timothy uh, for a number of reasons that are very obvious. And one of those is that he would be an encouragement, that Timothy would be encouraged. Remember, he's, he's standing in the place where Paul was before. He's, you think he's catching all the flack and all of that that the apostle was enduring when he was there? You betcha. He's fighting the fight. He's on the battle line. And it's a letterment from, the, from his commander in sense to the soldier on the field to be encouraged. It's also a letter of instruction. And we've seen some of that uh, already. But as we go through here, we're going to find out that, that what Paul is doing in most of the rest of this epistle is... He is instructing Timothy in things that Timothy needs to know and needs to understand and needs to put into practice in the church in Ephesus and wherever else he goes. Let me just tell you that some of the, the things that we have studied in, uh, in First Timothy already probably would not be very popular subjects in the Christian church at large today. As we get into some things to, today, I would imagine there are lots of circles where uh, particular texts we're going to be going to would be avoided at all costs. Uh, but we're not going to do that. We believe in that the Bible, the whole Bible, every word in the Bible is inspired uh, and therefore inerrant word of God. And we understand that it is God speaking to us, that it is his rule for life and practice for all of us. And even though there are some things that we're going to study sometimes that maybe don't seem to rub us necessarily the right way, we have to remember that we all still have that vestige of a sinful nature within us. And so we're not completely pure, and so our understanding of things is still going to remain somewhat in a a fog. And just remember, these are the things... Of God. These are the things that are dear to him. They're here for a reason. We need to understand that 1 Timothy wasn't written in a vacuum. It wasn't Paul sitting down one day and just contemplating, well, maybe it might be time for me to give Timothy a lesson in this and a lesson in that. You need to understand that he is not dealing with potential circumstances, he's dealing with reality. That these are issues in the church, not potential issues but real things going on. We're in chapter 2. As we begin chapter 2, there's uh, some things that are very pertinent to where we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about this morning. And, and one of those is, remember, we talked about the primacy of prayer, how important prayer is, how prayer comes before everything. And that we need to be in prayer on behalf of all sorts of people, those in authority in particular. And we understand that there's a reason for doing it. And it's not just because God commands it, but it's also because God knows it is good and it's pleasing to him. We talked last week about how there is one God and there is one mediator also between God and men. And we know him to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the very great ransom that he paid. That you and I would be set free from the bondage of sin. How great that was. And that brings us now to verse... 7. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modesty or modestly and discreetly not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness We've already talked about this back in the very beginning, that Paul makes something very clear, and it is this, and that is that that being an apostle is not something he just of himself decided to do. That God himself called him, not only called him to do it, but he commanded him to do it. That Paul, in essence, had no choice but to do what God required of him. And he has done that. The apostles, we understand, were those men, and I want to emphasize here, in essence, men. There were no lady apostles, not a single example of a lady apostle in the Bible. Uh, One of the things that we're going to be getting into now is in this letter, Paul begins to make a real distinction between God's role for women and men in regard to the the context of the church. Uh, And so he begins... To do that shortly, but today yeah, I just want to remind you what apostles, who the apostles were, and let me just tell you, there are people who day who want to claim the name of apostle. Every now and then, you'll see a preacher calling himself apostle, so on and so on. And that's very dangerous ground. Uh, we understand the apostles were were particular men that Jesus immediately Jesus appointed for the purpose of tearing his ministry on after his ascension back into heaven. And Paul was just one of those. But he empowered them in very special ways. He emboldened them in very special ways. He used them in very special ways. You may not realize it, but Christianity spread through the the known worlds in record time in those days. Within generations, it had covered the whole known world. There had been missionaries, apostles had gone forth, and missionaries had gone forth for one reason, and that was to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Into this, I was made a preacher. Or it can be called a herald. If you know anything about heralds, herald were those guys. that went forth before the king to proclaim the king was coming and to proclaim things in the name of the king. See, Paul was both. He was an apostle and he was a preacher. And let me tell you, every one of the apostles was a preacher. It was part of the package. But at the same time, just as we said before, every preacher is not an apostle. We've talked about this a lot in the beginning, that is this. Is this a calling? It's not a vocation. Not something someone can just sit down one day and say, you know what, that sounds like something good that I would like to do. I'd really like to do something good for Jesus. Maybe that's what I ought to do. Sounds like a good heart, well-intentioned and all of that, but we have to understand something. That it's not a vocation. It's a calling. It's a special calling. And it's not one that God gives to everybody. Those who are called can do nothing else. There may be times when they really want to. <laughs> times when they would rather be doing something else, etc., etc., etc. But, but uh, that I can remember, my one of my preaching professors saying this to us over and over again: If you can do anything else, then please do it. If you cannot preach, then please don't. See those like Paul who, who truly are called to. To, to the preaching and calling, they understand what the prophet Jeremiah once said. He said these words. If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then my heart in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am wor- weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. They have to speak. The modern era, the, voc- the the vocation of preacher, if you want to call it that, has been somewhat blurred. I would imagine that some of you probably have very wrong ideas about what being in a pastorate really is. Uh, Preachers today wear very, very many hats. And sometimes I would say they wear too many hats. That the expectations of people very often are far too great on them. That no one can actually do what everyone thinks they ought to be doing. Preacher tries to wear too many hats, guys. It is, everyone in the church is going to suffer because of it. Because if you're spending all of your time doing this, that, and the other, that other people could very well be doing and probably in many cases are much more adept and much more able and better to do those things. The preaching going to suffer. And when the preaching suffers, everybody suffers. All of us. And let me tell you something. We are really blessed. Lori and I are blessed because there's a congregation here of people who Do a lot, let me tell you when I go to Presbyterian General Assembly, and I talk with other folks they don 't the other browsers they don 't paint the kind of picture that I see of you guys, and that is very often they feel like they 're all alone, they feel like they 're doing everything, and, and very few people are doing anything else, and everyone else has these high expectations for them and and, and when they fail and they falter, people just can 't believe it and etc, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to understand something, and that is the The failure rate of people in the ministry is extremely high, unbelievably high. And let me just tell you something. Part of it is because very often people put very unrealistic expectations on people in the ministry. Paul says here, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Right? In mid-sentence. Never do that? I used to do it quite a bit when I was a kid. When I was trying to explain something to my parents. (laughs) And the reason I would say this is because I had somewhat of a reputation for not always being honest about things that I had done. I mean, but doesn't it strike you that Paul says this, that he's saying this to Timothy, this man that he trusts, this man that he probably would trust with his life, he's saying to him, I'm not lying to you, Timothy, this is the truth. We understand this. that Paul had to fight tooth and nail his whole the rest of his whole life once he became an apostle to justify his apostleship to people over and over and over again. They challenged it. He was challenged at every corner because people knew of his history, of his great persecution of the church and all of that, and he was distrusted in the very beginning. No one wanted to even have any association with Paul. I mean, we get a little bit of a picture here that, in a sense, Paul understands he's kind of out there by himself. He even wonders maybe sometimes if Timothy understands. The apostles did many things, but the principal thing that they were supposed to do, this is what Jesus commissioned them to do, and that was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world, and they did it to the man, and they died martyrs' deaths with the exception of the apostle John. Every one of them died horrible deaths for preaching Jesus. Paul identifies himself here as the Apostle to the Gentiles, which, if you know anything about Paul, you understand that that's kind of his title in a sense, unofficial title. Paul was the, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Even though he was Jewish himself, he was a Pharisee. And we need to understand some things uh, in regard to this. First of all, Paul did not forget about Jews. As a matter of fact, you see his practice over and over again when he goes out on the mission field is he goes and he ministers to the Jews first. And it's only when they reject the gospel of Jesus that he moves on to the Gentiles. And we we need to remember this, that he wasn't the first one of the apostles that God used to minister and bring the gospel to Gentiles either, that Peter was. Peter was ministering to Gentiles before Paul. But we understand that God used him in a very great instrument to carry the gospel beyond the Jewish people into the, the masses of the nations of the Gentiles. And just remember the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Lots of promises, but one of them was this. And that is that in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, let me ask you something. Is that a particular blessing that applies to you? I would imagine, and probably most of us, if you went back far enough in our heritage, you'd find there's some Jewish blood somewhere along the line. Uh, But... And that's a particular blessing that God gave to Abraham that you and I had benefited from. We are those families. We are of those families. Therefore, I desire the men in every place to pray, raising up holy hands without anger and doubt. Like I said before, much of what is left in this epistle has to do with Instructions. And like I said before, this is an area where Paul now begins. He hasn't made a distinction between men and women up to this point. You need to understand that when he's when, in your Bible where it says men or men, it's, it's uh, anthropos, which, which is, is a is – it can literally be men, but not necessarily. It, it can be applied to all people, and that's usually how it applies, Right? But you need to understand here that he shifts gears. The word he's using here is no longer anthropos. Now it's andros, which literally means male. So he's talking here now specifically about men. We talked about how prayer has a primacy. In other words, prayer comes before everything else. But this might surprise us here that one of the first things that, that Paul instructs in regard to men specifically is to be the leaders when it comes to prayer. In other words, prayer is very, very important. And the ones who have most responsibility in that particular aspect of the spiritual well-being of themselves and everyone else is or are, are the men? I want you to know something. He doesn't give this as a commandment. What he says is here basically is, I wish, I want, I desire that all men lift up holy hands. important because I would imagine there are many many households where if there's praying going on it's not the husband the father taking the initiative very often I think it's an area where men very often have failed very grossly in the leadership of their families me included you understand as we're going through and studying all this stuff, I'm convicted of all my faults and all my failures and how lousy I've been at all kinds of things. Let me tell you being you know, prayer being a priority in I home has always been, and I have not very often taken a lead in it. Have you ever prayed like this guys, raising up holy hands? Have you ever one time in your whole lifetime, guys, I'm talking to the guys, have you ever prayed like that one single time? I know you're supposed to have your eyes open on Sunday morning, but have you ever seen me do it? Even standing here in the pulpit, I'm not sure that I've ever one time in my whole lifetime prayed like that. It's not a good thing. Now, I want to warn you against something. It's not saying here that every time you pray, you're supposed to do this. Okay? Uh, Because we have examples in the Bible of all kinds of postures of people being in when they're praying. Okay? They're real legitimate prayers. Sometimes people are standing up. Hannah. Mother of Samuel. I knew it would come. Samuel. I was hoping it would come. Praying the tabernacle. Mentioned specifically that she was standing. Mark chapter eleven verse twenty five. Jesus describes standing as an appropriate posture for prayer. Luke chapter eighteen. One of the things about Luke uh, that makes it distinct from the others is there's a number of different parables there that you find in Luke you don't find in any other uh, gospel. And one of those is the the the, uh, parable of the publican and the tax gatherer in the temple. And it mentions there specifically how the tax gatherer was standing and crying out to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There are examples of kneeling, kneeling when you pray. Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Daniel, great prayer warrior in his day, even when it became illegal for him to be praying, he continued to do it. Continued kneeling on his knees. I don't know what else he would kneel on, but kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying. Sometimes posture for prayer is face down on the ground. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, speaking about Moses himself. So I fell down before the Lord and I prayed the Lord. Jesus is Gethsemane. If you've ever seen any pictures of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, I'd be willing to bet you he was sitting. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is he went a little bit beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed. So I just say these things so you realize that that I don't want all of you from now on to believe the only way you can pray is to raise your hands while you're standing up. But one of the things we have to understand is there certainly is a place for that. And I would imagine it's a place that very often churches don't go. There are examples of people praying in the Bible Raising their hands up. One of those is Moses. You know, when he prayed to God that he would bring an end to the, the plague of the fiery hail that was falling from the sky on Egypt, he raised his hands. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, when he's, he, this big elaborate prayer that we have recorded in his scripture of Solomon, he raised his hands. Jesus immediately before his ascension, raised his hands and he blessed those 11 apostles. So what's the point? The point is this? is I think there needs to be a variety here, that sometimes we get stuck in our little ruts. And we think that, it, and, 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 and let me tell you, ruts tend to become traditions, and traditions almost become to be like unwritten laws. That people believe you have to do this particular thing, and you have to do it a particular way, and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. And very often it's nothing more than their opinion, but they believe that it's what the Bible has said, what God has said, that it's the only way it can be done. Not only does he say that he wishes or desires that men pray with and lifting holy hands, but they are to do it without anger and doubt. I think that is there for a lot of reasons. And one of those is help brings us back down to earth and understand what really is the most important aspect of prayer. And it's not the posture of your body, it's the posture of your heart. it's the inner attitude of your soul is your heart right in it not as it is Is anything really accomplished if you lift your hands up and you're, and you're, and there's nothing lying behind that that gives it importance or significance in other words, you're just lifting your hands for the heck of it does that does that really mean anything? No, but when you do it when, when, when you lift your hands, you have a sense of, of of God in heaven above you and reigning over you and all of that. But it strikes at your heart. It's a depiction of what's going on in your soul. The same thing is true when you fall flat on your face before God and you're humbled by His greatness. Remember what's... Most important in prayer, what's coming out of your mouth is important, but what's going on in your heart is far more important. Without anger, you ever get angry with God? You ever get angry with other people? There's not a place for it. I didn't say that. He did. He just did. One of the points I think Paul is making here is this, is prayer is intended to be a point of unity to the body of Christ not a point of division. And as as unbelievable as it might be that we can even make something like prayer a point of division in the church. There could be some church somewhere, some denomination somewhere, because what it says right here that every time anybody prays, you're supposed to lift your hands up, and if you don't, you're not praying. You're praying not praying to God, you're praying to Satan or some crazy thing. We find this whole mindset depicted in many things, and one of those is some of the things that Jesus says. For instance, there you therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. You ever doubt? You ever have this mindset when you're getting ready to pray, thinking, I'm going to pray this, but I know he's not going to do it. There's no way God is going to answer this prayer. It just won't happen. I just know it is. I know how so-and-so is. I've been praying for the salvation for umpteen million years and all that other kind of stuff. I'm I'm going to go ahead and pray the prayer because God told me I'm supposed to do it. So I'll pray the prayer, but I don't think for one minute that it's going to actually happen. The guy's doubt kills prayer. Takes the breath out of it, takes the life out of it. Prayer can be one of those things that is done in, in certain contexts that is done for all the wrong reasons. Jesus addressed some of those reasons, uh, and the reasons the Pharisees were doing it. And he said this to them. He said, if you pray, you're not to be as hypocrites, for they love to stand and, uh, and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? In order to be seen by men. In other words, sometimes we can pray, and, and we're praying for all the wrong reasons. We're praying because we want people to be impressed with that prayer that we pray. We want them to think that we are really super-duper spiritual kind of people. And our focus really is not on the object of our prayer who is God. We're thinking about the people around us. And any time, and probably the first time that any of you ever prayed, when you were with a group of other people and you prayed out loud and they listened to what you had to say, you probably were more concerned about what they were hearing you say and their impression of you than what you actually were saying. I'll be honest with you. We're sitting in prayer breakfast every week. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be the one who's this great prayer warrior that says all of these wonderful, beautiful, perfect prayers all the time. I want to impress those guys in that room. I want them to think that I'm very spiritual, I'm very godly. And the same thing's true in session meetings and stuff. But even though you may have some of those thoughts, you get lost in prayer. They go away. When you really get into it, you forget about yourself. And see, this is the thing that Jesus is challenging the Pharisees with, and we need to be challenged with, is that is don't do anything in a manner that's designed to bring attention to yourself. Prayer above everything else is designed to bring attention to God. Now we come to the hard part. We'll start unpacking this today. We're not going to finish it this morning, but I'm going to get started on this. So he gives attention, first of all, to the men, and the the, the whole idea of this primacy of prayer, and men are to take the lead. Now he turns his attention to the females, to the women. And in the same way, women are to dress themselves in a respectful, uh, respectable manner with modesty and decency to adorn themselves not in elaborate hairstyles in gold or pearls or expensive apparel. I want you to no- notice something here, and that is Paul doesn't say, I want this or I desire this for women. It doesn't say that. The assumption is because he said that he desired that men pray. Now he's saying, I desire that women, or I want women. This is what I want women to do. It's not there. But I'm telling you, there's a sense in which this is almost like maybe perhaps better understood as a commandment coming through God's apostle to us. In other words, it's not Paul saying, I personally wish or I desire I think this is good or whatever. He's, He's saying, this is God's stuff. This is what God says. And again, remember this. This letter's not written in a vacuum. He wrote this because there were women who were coming to church on Sunday who were doing everything that they could to bring the attention in particular of the men toward them. And they were doing it intentionally. Intentionally. They wanted the attention. Now, we all are very aware of the world that we live in, and we understand this. This stuff like this has just gone run amok. That you can just, you know, just get innocently get on the Internet before you know it. You've got pornography right there in front of your face. You weren't even looking for it. There it is. It happens all the time. But can you imagine something like that going on in the context of the church? I just remember this. You know, one of the churches that Paul planted was the church in Corinth, and Corinth was a hotbed for stuff like pornography. You need to understand that. It was like modern day Las Vegas or somewhere. We could go there if you had enough money, you could get anything you wanted place of vice in every way every manner so why could something like this cause it could cause all it can create all kinds of issues it can encourage jealousy and strife amongst the other women Draw the attention of men who should be focused. They're in the worship service. They should be focusing on something else. Not what so-and-so has on today and how they've done this, that, or that to their hair. Very often, I would imagine, it had a lot to do with wealthy women flaunting their wealth to the less fortunate. What about being an example to the younger people, especially the little girls? Promotes the sort of thing that Jesus describes in these warnings. He says, When therefore you give your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as as the hypocrites do, that they may be honored by men. And when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners in order to be seen by men. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. In other words, what's being emphasized here is this, is that when you're doing worshipful things, you should be doing everything to take people's attention away from you, not do you. Let me just say something, gals. You're doing great. Seriously. I don't see anybody in this room right now that I have any questions about. Not one. The manner in which they're dressed. It's one thing to look nice for your husband. It's another thing when you go beyond that and begin to dress in a sense seductively because you want that attention it's a sad world out there guys and gals we really should weep we should cry every time we look out on this world and see the kind of things that are going on very publicly very openly all you have to do is go to the beach Bathing suits keep getting smaller and smaller. And that's not just for the gals. It's for the guys, too. Many of them hardly cover up anything. First time I ever saw a thong, we were sitting on St. Augustine Beach, and a guy was wearing it. It was one of the grossest things I ever saw in my life. But he was just kind of strutting down the beach like a big old rooster or something like that. And I wished I had a BB gun and I would (laughs) have set him on fire. (laughs) because <laughs> he was doing it right in front of my daughters. They were just little kids. But today. You know, it's hard to conceive of this. This is probably a reality. It's got to be a reality. If we look at the world and see it as it is, we need to understand that there's a sense in which the world as it is is a reflection of the church as it is in every age, especially in a place like the U.S. where the church has so much influence upon the culture. I mean, it's very possible, it's very likely, as a matter of fact, based upon the current culture conditions, that there are churches right now and there are women there that are doing exactly this particular thing. And it's sad. It should make us weep. That women sometimes are willing to do just about anything, it seems, to get attention. That's the world. And there's a sense in which the world's always been that way. That God is the creator of all things. Men and women, and, let me, and you know this is true, that today that there are people who are trying to do everything they possibly can to wipe away any distinction between men and women. They're doing everything they can to do that. Do you understand that in doing that, they're fighting against the God who made them? That God is the one who is established. There are distinctions between men and women, period. There are. You can't get away from them. You can't get around them. They're not going to go away. And they're there because God made them. Because we are his idea. We are his creation. He can do that. And he doesn't have to apologize to anybody. And I hope that none of you women here believe that that God, that Jesus, is a male chauvinist pig who thinks very little of women and very highly of men. That is not what we're talking about here at all. Remember this. We talked about the ransom that was paid for you last week, right? It's the same thing that's paid for guys as it is for gals, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how important you are. That's how valuable you you are to him. That's the thing that matters above and beyond everything else. But anyway, we are going to be talking more about this in the weeks to come, and I just wanted to kind of prepare you a little bit for that. This is a time when the church should be standing out like a sore thumb in a moral sense. And very often it's just not. Just isn't. We'll go there next week.